Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good afternoon and welcome to Taking You to School, the only college basketball program in the RF Sports Radio Network. It is Sunday, April 7th. We are in between the Final Four and the National Championship game. Great time of year. Welcome in. I am Joe Perello of SweetSports.com. That's S-U-I-T-E Sports.com. Check us out for our March Man Crush Tournament, which is almost as interesting as the NCAA Tournament. We had a lot of fun with it. Uh, Joining me, as always... From Round Ball Daily, one of the best hoops blogs on the net, is Kells Dayton. He also contributes for Sheridan Hoops and Slam Magazine. Kells, how are you doing today? Doing great, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We're uh, we're hoping your phone doesn't die here and we can get you through this show, uh, but we may we may have to carry on without you. You, you think you're going to make it? Uh, I think I'm going to make it. I think I, I just found a plug. It was, uh, you know, it's, it's a little precarious for a while, but it looks good now. <laughs> All right, always good to get that taken care of at the last minute. Uh, also joining us, my colleague at Sweet Sports. He also contributes to several blogs on the ESPN True Hoop Network, including Clipper Blog, uh, something 76, Hoop 76. I can't keep holding straight, but he contributes to a lot of them. He's a big-time NBA writer, Mr. Jeremy Conlon. Uh, Jeremy, I know you're pretty excited about tonight about WrestleMania, and you're definitely not going to be watching Mad Men, are you? I don't know why you torture me like this, Joe. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, anyways, while I love college basketball, I'm pretty pumped about WrestleMania tonight, but we won't even get into that. We won't even get into how The Rock is going to have to job to Cena, and it's just a darn shame. But uh, we'll start with last night and talk about the Michigan Wolverines, who were making their first trip back to the NCAA championship game since 1993, when Chris Webber had the most famous terrible timeout call of all time against North Carolina Tar Heels. Uh, of course, that was the second year of the Fab Five. They lost that game. They lost the year before to Duke. It'll be uh, Michigan going for their first title since 1989 when they won that title, helping to bring in the Fab Five class. So things coming kind of around. Uh, the thing about Michigan, they didn't even really play all that well last night against Syracuse. You thought they'd have to shoot really well to beat that 2-3 zone. Uh, not so much. You know, They shot under 40% from the field, only 30% from downtown. They made barely made 50% of their free throws going for 11 for 20 from the charity straight, and yet Big Blue's headed to the title game. Uh, you look, Naismith Award finalist point guard Trey Burke, only seven points on one of eight shooting. So, Kelv, I'll go to you. How did Michigan get this done against a pretty hot Syracuse team? Yeah, Joe, well, I think uh, offensively when you look at these teams in the Final Four the past few years, really it's, the offense has been awful. And I think part of the reason for that is because they're playing in these huge domes, these football stadiums, and it's tough. You know, the depth perception is really tough. It's tough to really get a feel for such a big stadium uh, so late in the season and after you've played all your games basically up until that point in regular basketball arena. So you will see the shooting percentages go down. But I think the main thing for Michigan was 
they were able to uh, figure out Syracuse's zone. They got the ball in the middle with uh, Mitch McGarry. Uh, even though they didn't hit a lot of shots, they were able to hit enough shots. They played good defense as well. Syracuse uh, was really held down offensively, wasn't able to get to the basket. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams had a, a bad game. He wasn't able to drive and get to the basket like he was in previous games. And I think they did a great job, you know, offensively, uh, just stemming the tide and making Syracuse take tough shots. And I think that's basically how they won the game. I know Trey Burke only had uh, that one one field goal, but it was a pretty big field goal. It's long, deep yeah. three again. Another three uh, like he hit against Kansas. So I think Michigan was the better team against Syracuse, and I think it, it bore out that way in the game. And uh, I think they did a great job to get to Monday night, surviving and advancing, and it's going to be a great game on Monday night. Yeah, I mean, it definitely should be. Uh, you mentioned Mitch McGarry, the freshman, had another huge game. He's just had such a solid tournament. Uh, he went for 10 points and 12 rebounds, uh, despite the fact that his free throw motion, ugh, I haven't really watched it closely. It would make Shaq blush. He is just a terrible free throw shooter. Uh, then you have the two guys with NBA pedigrees and Tim Hardaway Jr., Glenn Robinson III. Each of them was in double figures. Uh, you looked at Hardaway was kind of the interesting case. He wasn't very efficient. He was like 4 of 16 from downtown. He took just a ton of shots, but he was the one guy that didn't seem to shy away from the big shots and the big moments other than Trey Burke. So it was nice to see they had a guy that was willing to uh, kind of put himself on the line like that. Uh, Carl LeVert came off the bench, gave him about 20 solid minutes, uh, chipped in eight points. I think he was three for four. He hit two three-pointers. So they were able to get little contributions uh, from all over without Trey Burke playing really, really well. But, Jeremy, I'm going to go to you on this. Trey Burke is their best player. He's their point guard. He's their leader. And on such a young team, he's considered a veteran as a sophomore. Uh, can they hope to beat Louisville if Trey Burke doesn't have a big night? Uh, no, they wouldn't beat Louisville if he doesn't play well. Uh, but I, I think the reason he didn't play well last night was more a uh, product of the matchup than it was just him not playing well. Um, mm-hmm. Just because Louisville was playing the zone and the, the front of their zone is so big with Carter Williams um, that it, it's hard for him to... Uh, hard for Burke to turn the corner and get into the lane. Um, but against Louisville, they don't play much zone, and their guards are, you know, not any bigger than uh, than Burke is. Um, yep. So if he's going to get the high screen at the top of the key, he shouldn't have much problem breaking down the defense and getting into the paint um, and creating shots that way. Uh, so it, I mean, it's, it's just going to come down to um, – how well Louisville can stay in front of them. Um, and, I mean, Syracuse was perfectly made to – their defense was perfectly structured to keep him out of the paint. Um, but Louisville, they're going to have a much tougher time. Yeah, fair enough. And like you mentioned, it was it's designed basically to force you into longer shots, uh, make penetrating, especially for your point guard, very, very difficult. They recruit too well, and Carter Williams didn't have a great offensive night. But he did do a really nice job of disrupting Burke when he came over to his side. Those long arms are, you know, obviously not going to make it easy to get to the basket. Uh, you know, now we're starting to get, you know, like we said, they're back in the championship game for the first time since the Fab Five. Uh, can I know Michigan fans are starting a little bit of the comparison. You know, there's there are similarities. This is a very young team. You look, Glenn Robinson the third, Nick Stauskas, and uh, Mitch McGarry are all freshmen. Trey Burke's only a sophomore. You got a guy like Tim Hardaway Jr., who's the old man of the group. He's a junior. Uh, it's not the collection of talent that the Fab Five is, probably, 
when you look back at guys, you know, obviously it was headlined by Chris Webber, Jalen Rose, Juwan Howard, all guys that went on to play in the NBA and had a, maybe not great, great careers, not as good as they some people would say they could have been, but extended NBA careers and yet other top-tier recruits like Jimmy King and Ray Jackson, who uh, Ray Jackson, I believe, is the only one that wasn't a McDonald's All-American. The rest of them all were. He's also the only one that didn't play in the NBA. So, you know, you look back, it's a freshman class that featured four McDonald's All-Americans, uh, four future NBA players, three lottery picks, produced six NBA All-Star appearances, uh, and Juwan Howard, by riding the bench with the Miami Heat, finally brought them an NBA title last year. Uh, well, I don't think this Michigan group will be asking a lot of them to to leave a legacy like that. Uh, Kells, I'll go to you. Do you think this team could be better than those Fab Five teams that failed to win a championship? Um, it's really tough to compare this team to those teams back in the day when there's so much more talent in college basketball. And I think, you know, today you wouldn't have those Fab Five all go to the same school. And, I mean, they might stay that one year. It just doesn't yeah. seem like in this era of college basketball that a guy like Chris Weber and Juwan Howard and Jalen Rose could all get together and play on the same team. So I think that team was a really special team. I think this Michigan team is uh, might end up being more revered at Michigan because of the fact that that Fab five, five team obviously had some uh, issues with Ed Martin and the booster situation and everything mm-hmm. that went on. So this is more of a clean kind of a championship team. It's a team that the banner you would you would assume at least with John Beeline it'll hang up there in the Michigan arena in the rafters. So maybe from that standpoint, you know, Michigan might be a little bit more proud of this team, but I think clearly the Fab Five team, obviously much more talented, but the talent overall in college basketball was so much better back then than it is right now. So this team's worthy this year, but clearly doesn't compare to that Fab Five team. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, first of all, that that could go down as the greatest recruiting class in college basketball history. It's certainly certainly up there, and you look at some of their games, you know, they were winning games where they're a member – a non-Fab Five player didn't score a point in some of those games. <laughs> they would just get those five guys scoring, you know, 90 points uh, and pretty much going off on people. Uh, Jeremy, I- I'd like to kind of get your feelings on it. I know you're a big NBA guy. Uh, combining their college legacy with their NBA legacy, uh, do you think the Fab Five is a little overrated, a little overblown? Uh, I mean, I think I think Jalen Rose was a little underrated as an NBA player. I don't think he got his due. But Chris Webber, you know, had all the potential to be one of the best power forwards of all time, certainly is a really good one, could be a future Hall of Famer. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, they came in with a ton of hype. They basically reinvented the game, kind of, you know, did the black high socks and everything like that. But is their legacy a little bit overblown? Um, it depends on what you're defining their legacy as. If they're, if you're only looking at on-court Yes, I'm just talking about on-court. I'm, I'm talking about does the hype kind of inflate the on-court? Well, but so their on-court legacy is probably a little bit overrated. Just that they made two Final Fours, I think it was. Um, two championship games, games, yeah. Uh, two, yeah, so two championship games that didn't win. So I mean, obviously they were really good, but they they lack the punch of actually winning the championship. But at the same time, just the way that they revolutionized college basketball, I don't think that can be overstated. Like they they were the first. Um, you know, really the first team that relied heavily on freshmen. Um, and, you know, they had a lot of success doing it. And that sort of, um, you know, turned the corner towards this current era where it's we're just going to get the best recruiting class and not worry about whether they're going to be here for four years. Yeah. 
Yeah, and obviously they changed the game in a in a plethora of ways. I was listening to a, I forget what game it was. I want to say it was an NIT game that was on, and Bobby Knight was doing the uh, color commentary. And colorful as he is, he was talking about the Fab Five, and basically said that they weren't fat because they never won anything. <laughs> so I, I don't think you can go that far because I think people have to remember that team never won a Big Ten title either. They uh, kind of similar to this year's Michigan squad, you know. This year's Michigan squad hit a bit of a freshman wall towards the uh, probably the third quarter of the season and kind of slowed down a little bit. You know, you saw the freshmen start to their, – their production sort of fell off. And I think like that team, this team lacked a little bit of the consistency to kind of go the, go the distance, so to speak, that like an Indiana had this year with some more experienced players uh, and things like that. So I, I think the similarities are definitely there between those two teams. But, yeah, I, I don't – from a revolutionary standpoint, from changing the game, and from a pure talent standpoint, you know, I don't see any of these guys having a Chris Weber-like career at the NBA level, uh, or maybe even a Jalen Rose in his prime level. But uh, but I certainly think guys like Trey Burke and Mitch McGarry, if he continues to produce like he has been, uh, have bright NBA futures. And, Jeremy, before we move on from the Fab Five, I want to go back to you. You know, Trey Burke has kind of been shooting up draft boards and things like that. McGarry probably won't go after this year. But what do you see as the pro prospects of – you know, I count four future pros on this team. Maybe I'm being uh, optimistic. I, I think Hardaway Jr. can be a pro. I think Robinson the third looks like a pro. Burke is obviously a lottery pick at this point. I think McCarry's a pro. Uh, and Stavkis just being a great outside shooter and being 6'6", he has a puncher's chance. Uh, how many future pros do you see on this team? Uh, the three, uh, Robinson, McGarry, and Burke will be NBA players. Uh, Robinson and Burke will likely be NBA players next year. Um, yeah. And McGarry, if he, uh, I mean, he, the the question was how McGarry would play against like long athletic guys, and he did pretty well last night. And if he does well against uh, Louisville, um, there he could be a, a mid first round pick this year if he came out. But he will be a will be a, a draft pick at some point. Um, yeah. So those three guys will definitely be in there. Um, Hardaway and Stoutskis are more fringe players. Um, yeah. But I mean, just. Hardaway has has size and athleticism from the two position, um, and Stauskas is a really good shooter. Um, so just th- those things alone will probably make them second round picks. I'm doubtful that um, they'll have major impacts in the league. They'll be they'll be you know maybe rotation players, um, mm-hmm. but Burke, McGarry, and, and Robinson will definitely be um, you know prominent NBA players. All right, very nice. Uh, well. We talked enough about Michigan, about the history of Michigan, about this current Michigan team. Let's move on to our other national finalists, the Louisville Cardinals. Uh, they trailed for the vast majority of their game against upstart Wichita State. Uh, the Shockers frustrated the Cardinals early, holding them to just 25 first-half points. Now, albeit they only scored 26 themselves, but Wichita State, not an offensive team. They like to slow the game down, like to grind you to a halt. And they, they played their strategy out pretty perfectly against Louisville until the very end. Uh, Kel, I'll go back to you. Uh, just what did Wichita State do to, for lack of a better term, just absolutely frustrate Rick Pitino's group in the first half? Yeah, well, I think you said it, Joe. I think they uh, came out and really made the game ugly. They slowed it down. I think they played great defense. I think uh, Rick Pitino said at the end of the game, uh, Wichita State makes one of his guys have a bad night, and he told his team before the game, don't get frustrated. One of you guys is not going to shoot very well in this game because that's just <laughs> what they do. And uh, that pretty much bore out. That was exactly what happened in the game. Um, I think I was really surprised at the way that Wichita State was able to uh, 
enhance or uh, impose their will on Louisville in terms of the style of play of the game, uh, especially in that first half. It was really just walking the ball up the court. Uh, they didn't turn the ball over very much at all. I think they had four turnovers until late in the game. And uh, really, if not for a couple plays that went Louisville's way late at the end of the game, he had to walk on uh, hitting two threes at the end of the game, which was uh, towards the end of the game, which was uh, completely out of nowhere for Louisville. Uh, you had Hancock obviously knocking down a couple big shots in the corner. If not for those plays and if not for a couple turnovers at the end towards uh, when Malcolm Arnstead wasn't in the game for Wichita State, I think they could have pulled off this upset. So I think it was absolutely unbelievable to see them really control the pace of the game and to make the game their style. And I think, uh, as we'll probably talk about a little bit later in the show, uh, it's a lot easier to slow a game down than it is to speed one up in the college game because of the shot clock. And I think Wichita State used that to their advantage, and that's why the game was really close and they had a chance to win it. Yeah, not only a chance to win it, I I thought they – there was a period of time uh, with about 10 minutes left in the second half. I was just like, wow, you know, I don't see how Louisville comes back and wins this game. They just couldn't get anything going. They had basically no rhythm shooting. And, yeah, Wichita State, uh, a physical bunch, and they slowed the game down. And you mentioned the depth perception of playing in these big arenas. And we'll, we'll get back to talking about why they – I hate the fact that they play these games in football arenas and not just for that reason. But we'll get on to that. Uh, but, uh, Jeremy, I'll go to you. I know you want to talk about – kind of the uh, the rate of play, if you will, in college basketball. But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Kevin Ware injury and uh, my theory on maybe that's why Louisville started a little bit slow and a little bit timid. I thought they kind of looked, for lack of a better term, scared out there early on. Uh, I know that they had a long layoff, and obviously Wichita State had a lot to do with it. But when you lose a player in that kind of fashion, do you think it could slow a team like Louisville down, as, even as experienced as they are? Um, I don't think it was a psychological impact as much as it was um, sort of just like not having him there um, because he's such a big part of their guard rotation. Like Peyton Siva had a really bad night, um, and, you know, Russ Smith was bricking free throws early. Like it was – they were pretty discombobulated. Just not having his presence on the court to, um, you you know, a calming influence or whatever um, I, like, I don't think that they were playing scared because he wasn't there. I think they were um, just they were lacking his physical presence on the court, um, and it screwed up their rotations a little bit. Um, so in that sense, I think it, I think it had a factor. Um, I mean, like, I'm looking at the box score right now. Like, Peyton Siebel was one for nine from the floor. Um, Russ Smith was, like, one for six on his first six free throws. So just um, not having him there to um, – sort of stem the tide of, you know, their poor backcourt, um, mm-hmm. at least in the, in the first half. I think that was a big issue for them. Um, but once they sort of found a groove in the second half, which they obviously did, um, it wasn't as, much of, wasn't as much of a detriment for them. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, there's the psychological aspect, but also you mentioned, yeah, he's a pretty big cog in, a, in their backcourt. So losing him just from – you know, losing a quality guard is also uh, very, very difficult. Uh, but the Cardinals did mount a rally. Uh, Luke Hancock was the hero, <laughs> hit a couple big shots, and he made the biggest play of the game, securing that jump ball off of one of his uh, own missed free throws. Tells, uh, I'll go to you with how did the Cardinals t- possibly turn this thing around when they looked dead to rights for a while? And I want to get your thoughts. Did you agree with that controversial jump ball call? Everybody hit Twitter right after that happened and seemed to think that that was a really quick tie-up call. Um, I didn't really have a problem with it. Most people said you can't make that call at that point in the game. 
Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts were on that that call that pretty much locked the game up for Louisville. Yeah, I'm with you, Joe. I didn't really have that big of a problem with it, and I think the main reason I didn't have that big of a problem with it is because Baker in that spot cannot put the ball on the floor. At that spot in the game, you've got a timeout, you get the rebound. What are you dribbling for? With the guy standing right next to you, it just made no sense at that point to me. I think that was just a huge mistake by him. He's got to catch the ball, pivot, get in a good position and call a timeout. They had plenty of time at that point in time. So I think that was a big mistake, and he put himself in a position to make the refs make that call, and they did. Mm. It's uh, unfortunate for Wichita State. But um, as far as Louisville coming back, I think, you know, a lot of people said that the uh, pressure came back to haunt Wichita State, that they eventually, you know, wore down. And I think that had a lot to do with it. But I think the foul trouble that Malcolm Armstead got in, four fouls I think he had with like five minutes left in the game, I think that really hurt them because – they're, the rest of their backcourt is so inexperienced when you look at Baker and Van Vliet and company back there, even uh, Cotton. Um, you know, they didn't have that experience and they didn't have that ability to take over the game and just take control of it and control what they needed to do. And they started turning the ball over. And I think there was like a little three-minute stretch where uh, Armstead was out that they just lost control of the game. And I mm-hmm. think that was huge for them. Um, I think foul trouble was huge for everyone in the whole game. I mean, uh, Dang went out pretty early in the game with four fouls. I think if he's in the game uh, for most of the second half, the game probably turns early. I think Louisville might have pulled away a little bit earlier because of his defensive presence and what he's able to do. But I think really for Wichita State, for them to get in foul trouble in that backcourt, that really hurt them with Malcolm Armstead being out. Yeah, and like you mentioned, a lot of people were in foul trouble. It was was an ugly game. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to say it. There were a lot of fouls. Uh, slowed down, not a lot of scoring, not a lot of great looks. Uh, Jeremy, I'll get to you. We're going to talk about rate of play in a second and a little bit about how kind of ugly, for lack of a better term, this game was. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that last uh, on that last call that uh, kind of secured the game for Louisville. I'm not a big fan of the you can't call that then or there or whatever, just because I think the rules are the rules, and I think you should pretty much always ref it the same way. That's why I hate when refs swallow their whistles in uh, crucial moments because – you know, rules are rules. But I wanted to get your thoughts. Do you think, first of all, did you think it was a good call? And then we'll move on to uh, the ugliness of that game. Well, I, this is going to be an easy transition, I think. Um, yeah. Because I don't have a problem with that, with them making that call at that specific point in time. Um, mm-hmm. I do have a problem with the way college basketball handles jump balls. Um, yeah. Be, because they basically just say, no one, neither one of you got possession of this ball, so we're going to arbitrarily award one team possession. Like, that that doesn't make any sense. Just have them jump the ball. Um, So, in that sense, it was, you know, I don't, you know, college refs love to make the the jump ball call and the offensive foul call. Oh, Um, they do. If there was some way, if there was some way that you could have a jump ball charge foul, you would see it on every single possession. They would call it every time. And they do a big dance before they called it, too. They'd, like, kind of yep. lean into it. Duh, 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 boom! <laughs> Those are great calls. <laughs> but, uh, but I digress. Go ahead, Jeremy. <laughs> well, yeah, so, I mean, it's just a, a, to transition into, um, you know, I've been watching a lot of the tournament um, just so we can do the show. Um, I normally don't watch that much college basketball. Um but it's just I've been growing more and more frustrated with um, not so much the rules, but just the 
the physical setup of the game. I don't like the 35-second shot clock, and I was arguing about this with Kells on Facebook last night. Um, yeah, I remember. It, it, I think it's, it's too long just in the sense that they don't use the first 15 seconds of the shot clock anyway, so why are we giving them that 35? Like, if they're not going to use the 35 to actually come up with a set, like a lot of their early movement, and this is for basically every team, um, a lot of the early movement is just dummy movement that's not presenting any tangible threat to the defense. It's just setting random screens and not even forcing switches. It's just just movement for the sake of movement that's not going anywhere. Um, so in that sense, I don't I don't like that they get 35 seconds just to stand around and do nothing for the most part. Um, I think if it was a shorter mm-hmm. shot clock, you would force the pace of the game higher uh, and you'd see more scoring. Um, and in, in similar veins, um, I think the, the three-point line should be extended out again um, just to facilitate more movement inside. Uh, and also, this is something that I've, I've never heard people really talk about. Um, the width of the foul lane in college is only 12 feet, with mm-hmm. 16 feet. Um, and with a with a wider foul lane, it's you know easier to get called for a three-second violation, which forces the big men to move around more. Um, and mm-hmm. in most cases, that that happens with um, them coming up to set high screens and all that. Um, and just with more movement, there's less congestion in the paint. It opens up driving lanes. It's easier for people to get to the basket. Um, so it, it, in that sense, like, I mean, they're they're pretty easy fixes. And it's it's not like people um, that say soccer should get rid of the offsides. Like, we're not fundamentally changing the nature of the game. Um, I, like, I'm just trying to change the dimensions of the court. I guess I think I think that would, you know, uh, it would it would open up the game a lot to. Uh, to make some of those sort of structural changes to the court itself. All right. Well, like you guys said, uh, you guys were having a mini debate on uh, Facebook about this yesterday. I was watching the games and checked my phone, and before I realized that there were about 30 things going back and forth between the two of you. So, uh, Kells, I'm going to give you a, a little chance for a rebuttal. I'm sure you don't disagree with everything Jeremy said. I don't think widening the lane would be a terrible idea, but I know you were opposed to changing the shot clock and a few other things. Uh, what are some of the things that Jeremy said that you you disagree with and and kind of give us a little reason why? Yeah, I mean, Jeremy's coming at it from the standpoint of an NBA guy, which I understand. I mean, I'm I'm a college guy. When I look at the NBA, I kind of had problems with the NBA game as far as some of the rules are concerned. But I think uh, the shot clock's the main thing that that I would not want to change. I mean, if you're going to make it 30 seconds, I think that would be fine. But I think, you know, making it 24 seconds like the NBA game would just be an atrocity for college basketball because you're going to give these guys less time to get a good shot when they already are getting terrible shots to begin with. Uh, These guys are not great offensive players to begin with. So I just think that, you know, college basketball, a lot of it is about, you know, offensive sets. It's not one-on-one like the NBA is. You take a look at a team like Wisconsin that runs a lot of offensive sets. Their key is slowing the game down. They want to slow yeah. the game down. And then if you have 24 seconds to shoot, by the time you get over half court, you've got like 15 seconds to set something up, get your sets going. Wisconsin, that's not the way they play. Their, their whole their whole goal is to slow the game down and to, you know, make the game ugly, make it a 50-49 to 49 game. And I just think when you take that away, you're taking away their whole style of play. You're taking away upsets. There's too many possessions in the NBA, I think. It's back and forth, back and forth. The first quarter doesn't matter because there's, 
you know, however many other possessions that are going to go on in the in the in the game. So I think you take a look at uh, college basketball. Every possession means more. I think the fact that uh, you know there's more upsets because teams there's fewer possessions. You have to make them count. And I just think it would really change the college game. I think the problem that Jeremy's seeing this year is kind of a this year problem. It's because everyone sucks this year. I mean, let's be honest about it. Yeah. Not very good level <laughs> in college basketball this year. So I think in the past it hadn't been a problem. And I think people coming in this year and looking at it and saying, and I've heard other people say it too, that we should change the shot clock. But I just think it's a level of play issue, and eventually it'll uh, get back to the point where it won't be an issue anymore and offenses will be fine. And I just don't think we need to make that change. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting debate because you hope that the level of play comes back around and uh, – yeah, I mean, the level of play throughout college basketball. I would say the Big East and Big Ten have had good years, but a lot of those Big Ten teams have been good because they're just great defensive and rebounding teams, and they win games 52 to 47, and they make those one or two big shots when they have to. But, you know, these aren't great offensive teams. The only truly great offensive teams in the Big Ten this year were probably Michigan and Indiana. So, you know, it's it's not like there's a lot of offensive juggernauts out there. Uh, Jeremy, I wanted to – get back to one point that Kells made, and I know you're probably going to disagree with this, and when I heard him say it, I just uh, I could feel blood boiling, that there would be less upsets if we made these rule changes. Is that a reason to not make a rule change, because there'd be less upsets? Uh, no, because I don't like upsets. I like it when <laughs> the better team wins. Um, I'm one of the five people on the planet that appreciates the karmic justice of being the better team. I guess I, I don't. I I really don't understand the love affair with upsets, um, because I, like if, if an upset occurs in the early round, it means there's fewer good teams left in the tournament. I want to see the final games of the tournament be among the best teams in the country. Like Wichita State, I don't think was one of the four best teams in the country. I don't think that's much of an argument. Um, they they got hot for three weeks and and made the final four. Um, but I, I much would have preferred to see, you know, Ohio State or Gonzaga come out of that bracket um, just because they're better teams and they would have, you know, played better basketball in the bigger game. Um, so in that sense, I don't think that's a, a good reason for it. Um, you know, I, I think the idea that um, college players would have less time to find a good shot, I think that's a, a decent argument, but I mean uh, – to what I said before, like for a lot of the shot clock, they're not really doing much anyway. So why couldn't they just get into their sets quicker and, and just cut out that sort of the dummy decoy movement for the first 10, 15 seconds that they run anyway? All right, fair enough. Uh, Kels, I'll get back to you. I know you're a, a big fan of college basketball and probably a big fan of Cinderella's and upsets and whatnot. Uh, your final rebuttal before we move on to our uh, championship game preview. Yeah, I was just going to say, upsets are what college basketball is all about, Joe. Can you imagine Dickie V without upsets? I mean, <laughs> that'd be sharks without water. Like, I, I just don't – it's just – it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I understand that, uh, you know, having the best four teams in the Final Four makes for a great Final Four, but upsets are what college basketball is all about, man. I mean, this is this is why people love March Madness. So I would love to see, you know, anything we can do to continue – upsets and continue things like that, I think is a good thing for the sport. Yeah, and I think general, and I think the uh, you're finding this in the professional leagues too with why the NFL is such a juggernaut over the other professional leagues is the unpredictability. 
and year to year, the way that one team can rise and fall. Uh, yeah, I don't have a one-and-done format and upsets and things like that. Uh, I would agree with something Jeremy and I were talking about, that if you wanted to determine the best team in the country, you probably wouldn't invite 64 teams and do it in a one-game format. That's probably not the best way to totally determine who the best team in the country is. But it's also doggone it. It's the most entertaining way to determine a national champion. So you'll never hear me say a bad thing about the NCAA tournament. I I absolutely love the format. I think this year has been such a phenomenal tournament. With everybody's been saying it's been a bad tournament, but there haven't been a storyline there that oh, this you know where's broken leg is the biggest storyline. Like, did they even watch Florida Gulf Coast? Did they watch Wichita State? Did they watch any of these teams? Did they you know see all these upsets? I thought it was. I thought this was chock full of storylines. And you still got, in my opinion, the best team in the country left in the tournament in Louisville. So I think you kind of got the best of both worlds where you had the juggernauts winning. You had a team like Michigan that had all the talent in the world that figured it out at the right moment and got going. And I think it's hard to say that Michigan isn't one of the most talented teams in the country. You had many upsets. You had huge upsets. And you still have, again, in my opinion, the best team in the country in it. So I think this tournament has been a, a beautiful mix of Cinderella stories and good teams winning. But I digress. That gets us to where we are right now. Tomorrow we got Michigan versus Louisville. Uh, John Beeline against Rick Pitino. As I said, the Wolverines going for their first title since 1989, making their first title game appearance since the Fab Four. Five. Did I say Fab Four? Fab Five did it back in 93 and 92, losing to the two Carolina schools, Duke and North Carolina. Uh, Louisville's back in the title game for the first time since 86 when they won the national championship. So, uh, Kel's got the last word there. Jeremy, I'll go to you first on this. Quite simply, who you got? Um, I'm going to take Michigan uh, just because I think um, you know, I think Louisville's the more talented team top to bottom. But I think, um, you know, in a one-game scenario, um, it's, and it's like the last game of the season, obviously, like Michigan can just run their guys out there for 40 minutes if they wanted to. Um, and I think I think Michigan's a more top-heavy team in terms of talent. Um, I think Burke and McGarry are the two best players on the floor. Um, so in in that sense, I think they're gonna, you know, Louisville's depth isn't as much of a of a value in in a one-game scenario. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think we're gonna see Michigan get into a lot more of their, um, you know, how they played against Florida and. VCU early in the tournament, uh, and Kansas, obviously. Um, and it, they're going to be able to run a lot more high pick and roll because they're not going to have to deal with that zone that Syracuse is running. Uh, so they'll be able to get into their offense a little bit easier. Um, I mean, obviously, Louisville's a really good defensive team. Uh, but uh, I think it, it, they're a defense that Michigan is more equipped to attack than, um, than Syracuse was. So I think in that sense, it's going to be easier for them to get good looks um, and I think this is this is going to be another game where not having wear uh, is going to be a problem for Louisville. Uh, just in the, they're not going to have the depth in the backcourt to uh, to deal with Trey Burke uh, for 40 minutes. So uh, I, I think Michigan should, would be uh, would be my pick. Even though I, I think right now Vegas uh, says Louisville's the favorite. Yeah, Vegas has Louisville as a four-point favorite. <laughs> But uh, if I were a betting man on how that betting line was going to go, I think that's going to go down a little bit. But we shall see. Uh, I agree with you on a lot of those points. I think the man-to-man defense 
uh, faces Michigan. I think they're a little bit better in the backcourt. I think that, and I think they play some of their forwards almost out as wings. You know, Robinson can handle the ball. Hardaway's been playing kind of as a forward for them, but he's more of a wing anyways. Can really play the two. Uh, I think it's going to create more open shots for Stauskas off picks. And, yeah, Michigan's just playing better right now. I think that they're uh, playing at a higher level where you, you have to figure Burke's going to come back around. And he's really the one guy that just didn't play well in the last game. So you would think, think Michigan kind of has a little momentum rolling in. But that being said, I picked Louisville before this whole thing started. And my three my three final four picks went up in flames, two of them in the first round as New Mexico and Georgetown both got upset in the first round by Hart and Florida Gulf Coast, and then Indiana lost to Syracuse. So i got to stick with my one pick that's turned out to be right so far. i got to go with Louisville here. Rick Pitino, he's been there, done that. I think Russ Smith and Peyton Silva, they've got to play better. They're going to come back around. I don't think if Stoskis has to spot one of them, I don't think he's athletic enough to. Uh, and so I'm going with Louisville, or, you know, as they say in Louisville, Louisville. Uh, Kells, I'll go to you. Who, who who you got in this championship game? Uh, really great game, I think it's going to be, Joe. I, I agree with Jeremy with a lot of things he said about Michigan. And the other thing about Michigan is um, I think they are playing better right now, and I think that you kind of trust them more down the stretch. I would trust mm-hmm. Trey Burke more down the stretch than I would trust Peyton Caesar. You trust Hardaway Jr. to make a big shot more than Rusticulous. Um, so I think Michigan, even though Louisville has the experience of being there last year, and I think yeah. uh, you know that that counts for a lot. Michigan lost in the first round last year, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. But um, I just feel like Michigan has the guys who can make plays down the stretch of the game, and I think it's going to be a really close game too. And uh, I think the big matchup that's going to be interesting is Mitch McGarry versus uh, Gorgie Jang. In the middle, I think that's going to be a really interesting matchup to see who gets in foul trouble. Maybe Jank can stay in the game longer and really affect the game defensively. Um, but I think Michigan, just because I trust them a little more down the stretch, um, I love Louisville. Obviously, the pressure I think is going to be a big key. But Michigan proved it can handle pressure. When you look at what they did again against VCU, it was unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, how they handled that pressure. Completely just ate them up. So I think Michigan's proven they can handle it. I think they've proven that they're ready for this moment. And even though I think Louisville's probably probably the better team, I just feel like Michigan matches up well, and I think they're playing better right now. I'm going with the Wolverines to win it all. All right, so I got an NBA guy and a Big East guy both picking Michigan. I'm a Big Ten guy, and I'm picking Louisville. So uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but that's <laughs> so the that's, uh, that's That is the tournament. Crazy things happen. Uh, I got to go on Real Sports Jam tomorrow and tell the – and I – prior to the tournament, had made fun of Florida Gulf Coast <laughs> and talked about how I had a couple friends that went there and how the Eagles, you know, weren't were just happy to be there and stuff. So crazy things happen in the tournament that make you eat your words. But uh, I'm still riding my Louisville pick. I'm really glad I changed it from Georgetown is all I can say right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's, let's move away from the tournament a little bit. You know, next week we'll obviously dissect that game 100 which ways. Uh, let's talk about the other big story in college basketball right now, and it's uh, Rutgers coach Mike Rice. Obviously, that video came out, and you know it, it was known to the athletic director months ago or years ago, whatever, and nothing was done about it. Now he's Rice is gone, the athletic director is gone. Uh, Jeremy, you and I were talking about this actually. Uh, we had a meeting the other day, and, and 
you know, there were certain, there were definitely some things in that video that that definitely crossed the line, that were you know really bad things that were you know verbally just terrible things to say to anybody. And I think at one point he kicked a kid and you know throwing balls at people's heads, not exactly the uh, the model, not exactly a model citizen. But we were kind of saying you know, like the thing on the whole, the outrage it's inspired didn't really shock us. Uh, after I'm sure you've watched it since then, are you still kind of unmoved by this uh, by this footage of Mike Rice kind of uh, verbally and somewhat physically abusing his players? Uh, well, the verbal, like the the gay slurs that he was throwing around, were were pretty jarring. Um, yeah. So in that sense, like that 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 alone would be a fireable offense. Um, so it, that in conjunction with all the other stuff, obviously makes it a big story, but the, like outside of that, like, you know, he, he kicked a guy as he ran by, but like, it was sort of funny. Like, like it was a really high kicking him in the butt. Like it wasn't like it was a drop kick. Like it was, it was sort of like a kick in the butt as he ran by it. I thought, like, obviously it's, you don't want people to do that, but it's, you know, if, if you're a, uh, you know, a really fiery coach, like that's sort of part of the game plan, isn't it? And, uh, you know the 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 thing that really threw me about it was like I I heard the reaction to the video before I actually saw the video. It's like oh he's putting his hands on players and and blah blah blah. It's like and then when I saw the video, he was grabbing the guy's jersey to move him into the correct defensive position. It's not like he was grabbing him and throwing him to the ground or grabbing him and hitting him. Like he was physically moving him to the spot where he was supposed to be. Like that that's coaching. That's not abuse. Yeah, that part I didn't have a problem with. But then he threw a ball directly at the kid's head. I mean, that's well, you, not yeah, a so – do you think that's active coaching method? I mean, I wouldn't want a coach to do it to, like, my kid. But, um, you know, there, Bobby Knight was like that. And <laughs> he was one of the most successful coaches of all time. Um, and, you know – Coach K apparently has gone on huge tirades in practice. You know, maybe he hasn't thrown balls at people, but he's, you know, chewed people out pretty hard. Um, so, I mean, it's it's just it's part of coaching that you're going to lose your temper occasionally. Maybe the problem was that he was doing it every day. You know, maybe that was yeah. the issue. Um, but you know, the the video itself, other than um, like I said, the gayslers that he was throwing around, like. Other than that, nothing really surprised me. Okay, and yeah, I mean, coaching, you know, there's there's that line you can't cross, and maybe even some of the greats have crossed it at times. But I think the the like you mentioned, the big problem with Rice was it seemed like he was crossing that line with great regularity. <laughs> it yeah. didn't seem like he had he had much regard for that line. Uh, you mentioned Bobby Knight. It, it's obviously Bobby Knight, one of the greatest coaches in NCAA history. You know, top five in every category you can think of, multiple national championships. But ultimately, that was his undoing, too. You know, he choked a kid. He put his hands on a kid's neck, and that ultimately led him. And that was a different era. That was the era of Woody Hayes and, and these guys that, you know, were, were physical bullies to people much bigger and stronger than them, which is a weird concept when you think about it. And to think that this is going on, and we're always told how today's modern athlete is such a me-first prima donna, always looking out for themselves. I'm amazed one of these kids, if they had this big of a problem with it, didn't just sock the guy back. Like, maybe that's just me, but I thought if we were dealing with these, you know, prima donna athletes that, 
didn't want to be, you know, coached. And we always hear about how uncoachable people are, how they don't want to listen, they want to play their own game. I, I'm kind of surprised one of these guys didn't fire back. And honestly, they've all come out in support of Mike Rice, or at least most of them. So it was very, very bizarre. Uh, Kells, I know you're a Big East guy, and Rutgers at this point hardly qualifies as Big East because they've been terrible in the Big East forever, and they're leaving for the Big Ten. But uh, what was your reaction to this scandal? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because I think people are making a little bit too big of a deal about it. I don't think it should be an ABC News story uh, for, like, Mm -hmm. five days like it has been. But, I mean, you can't throw a ball at someone's head in practice. I mean, there's just no call for that. I think if you're a coach, you have to earn respect to the players. You can't just demand respect from them, and I think that was completely out of line. Um, But, like, it doesn't really surprise me, like Jeremy said, um, I think, you know, when I was working at Post College in Connecticut, which is a Division II college, uh, I was working as an assistant sports information director, um, yeah. and I would watch the basketball games and kind of keep the stats, and I'd be sitting right next to the bench. And uh, I can't tell you how many coaches uh, that were playing against Post when I was, I was watching the game in Waterbury were just, you couldn't believe the things they were shouting at the top of their lungs, sitting right next to the bench. One guy, his face got so red, I thought he was going to explode. He was screaming bloody murder because someone wasn't in the right position in an offensive set. It's just like, it's amazing. Like, I can't even imagine getting in that mindset to be a coach. And I just think it's not surprising when I see that, when I see so many of these coaches and their behavior and just the fact that they think that they're so much more important than than they are. I mean, you're a basketball coach. I mean, come on. Like, there's so many more important things in the world than a basketball coach. And I just think they take themselves too seriously. I think they think that, you know, they can't be defeated. They can't be taken down for stuff like this. And I think that's why it was such a problem, and that's why he needed to get fired because you've got to earn respect. Like I said, you can't demand it like that. You can't just be someone who's going to come in there and start chucking, just have no respect for anyone else if you want to get respect yeah. yourself, chucking balls at people. I thought the, what the assistant coach did was even worse because he was basically picking fights with players. He's like yeah. this little Mick, Mick Cronin-looking guy. He's basically picking fights with people. I just think, you know, it, it was just a little bit over the line. I think he definitely deserved to get fired, but I'm not really surprised when I see some of these basketball coaches and their behavior and the way that they go about things. I mean, it's just it's very surprising for an outsider, but I think if you're in the game and you've been, if you played and you understand how some of these coaches can be. Yeah, and I think it comes from a lot of different places. It was weird to see this from a, a guy like Mike Rice, who, yeah, he's known as being a fiery coach, but – I mean, he's never won anything, <laughs> you know. Like, you look at – I always felt that for Bobby Knight and Woody Hayes and those guys, it came from – you know, they had job security. If anything, them doing this made their job less secure. They went, they basically went against their self-interest to do this because they thought it would win games for them. They thought it would instill this discipline. I feel like Mike Rice was doing this almost out of fear, thinking I have to, like, get these kids to play at such a level or I'm going to be fired. And, and I feel like – you mentioned there are a lot of things in the world more important than a basketball coach. Yeah, but at the same time, the pressure is on these coaches. They're being paid millions of dollars. Universities are trying to make money off these programs. They demand results. So, uh, you know, I can see a guy maybe being, I mean, maybe he went a, maybe he snapped, maybe he went a little bit nuts, and just every day he was dipping a little deeper into it as his team was going 14 and 18, and he, he kind of felt like he had absolutely no control over it. I mean, yeah, Joe, I, mean, I don't think I don't think Mike Rice is a bad guy. I mean, I saw him up close at Robert Morris because I went to Quinnipiac and 
there in the NEC. That's definitely his personality. He's definitely a really intense coach, and he definitely probably means well with what he's doing. I just think they don't understand where the line is, and they don't understand that you need to earn respect instead of just, you know, demanding it and chucking balls at kids, and it's not appropriate behavior. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think it was it was definitely misguided, and the the thought that that would be an effective coaching strategy baffles my mind. But uh, but hey, he got his players into a little Stockholm syndrome. They were all like, they were all backing him up after he got fired. So very very bizarre. I guess if you're going to coach via Stockholm syndrome, that's probably the way to go. <laughs> like chucking balls at his heads, that's probably a good way to inspire that. Uh, let's move on to a happier subject before we uh, finish up. We got. Uh, a little less than 15 minutes left. And let's move on to the McDonald's All-American game. Uh, always one of my favorite events because it's, you know, like the NBA All-Star game, defense, dunks, alley-oops, a lot of fun. Every now and then you get a great defensive matchup of some kid that wants to prove something against another highly touted recruit. So you get those flashes of lockdown defense and things like that. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, it took place this past Wednesday. You know, the best high school senior basketball players in the country are all playing and Speaking of the Fab Five, uh, that class, which, of course, as we mentioned, Weber, Howard, and Rose and the like, held the record for most McDonald's All-Americans in one recruiting class until this year. Kentucky's upcoming incoming class has six Burger Boys in it, uh, those being the twin brothers Aaron and Andrew Harris from Texas, uh, another Texan, Julius Randall, Marcus Lee, the big power forward from California, combo forward James Young from Michigan, and the big center, Dakari Johnson from Monteverde in Florida. Uh, stacked, stacked class for John Calipari. Oh, and top overall prospect in the country, Andrew Wiggins, who is being talked about now as one of the best high school basketball prospects, maybe since LeBron James. He led the East with 19 points, threw down some big dunks, and he is also surprised considering Kentucky. Kentucky could bring in seven McDonald's All-Americans, including four of the top ten prospects, consensus prospects, uh, Jeremy, you, we've talked about how these coaches, especially guys like Calipari, they're in there because they're great recruiters, not necessarily great X's and O's guys. Just how on earth is he recruiting at this high of a level? Short answer, I have no idea. Like, I don't know how it's possible. Um, I mean, I can, like, you know, when you're playing video games, it's like he's literally just going down the list and getting everybody. And like, yeah. I, I I'm capable of doing that when I you know play NCAA 13, but the, just the you know Which the reality exist, of way. how much travel <laughs> is involved in that and how much you know commitment of time is involved in that, um, like like especially during the season, um, yeah, it's it's just incredible. Um, I mean, even if they don't get Wiggins, this is going to be like a a mind blowing. Um, you know, level of talent that they're bringing in, and they're, they potentially could get, um, you know, uh, some some holdovers from this year. Like Poitras might not declare for, them. he could, like he could be their eighth man next year. Like, just the the thought of that is, um, is, is incredible. Um, you know, personally, I you know I have no actual information about this, but I from the sense that I get, uh, I don't think Wiggins is going to go to Kentucky. I think he likes Florida State more. Um, but obviously, I have no actual information about that. That's just my hunch. Um, but uh, e- even if they don't get him, that's it's a it's a really incredible coup to get. Uh, what was it like six of the top twenty prospects or something like that? It's it's incredible. Yeah, six of the top thirty. 
So pretty astonishing. Uh, I believe Poitras is moving on to the NBA. He said, but Willie Cauley signs coming back. They've got a couple other guys coming back, and another guy in this recruiting class. No one's even talking about that. They may end up just. You hate to say it, you may not be able to take him on as a guy named Derek Willis, who this time last year was being talked about as a possible five-star guy. He's a six-foot-nine power forward, but he's a stretch four, three-point range. He was basically being talked about as one of the best prospects in the Midwest, and then his stock kind of dropped a little bit, and Kentucky just picked up a bunch of guys to make up for him. So it's really astonishing the job that Calipari's done there, and there's been the talk of, you know, agents and World Wide Wests and all these different uh, – characters that we like to bring up in college basketball recruiting to make it so fun. Uh, Kels, uh, your comments on this, what could be the greatest, you know, at least on paper uh, compared to the rest of their, their own class, uh, college basketball class in history. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with Jeremy. I have no idea how he's doing this. <laughs> it's absolutely, it's mind boggling that this guy, John Calipari, to see what he's done in the past, at UMass to get Marcus Canby uh, when he was back there, when he, when he went to Memphis to get Derrick Rose. Uh, now at Kentucky, he had Anthony Davis. He's had all these guys. I have no idea why all the top guys in one class would want to play for John Calipari as opposed to Mike Krzyzewski, as opposed to Roy Williams. I, I have no idea. It's just it, it's mind-boggling to see what he's doing. I mean, you could obviously think of past things, what's happened to his teams with the Final Fours being, uh, you know, him, him losing the Final Four banners at UMass and at Memphis with the issues with Derrick Rose's academic eligibility and everything. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot of shadiness in his program already, but he's not been caught, you know, not been caught doing anything at this point. So, I mean, it's just, it's kind of something that is kind of like the pink elephant in the room or whatever the yeah. expression is. I'm not really sure what it is, but, you <laughs> know. Elephant under the know, table. <laughs> Yeah, else another table. What a pink! I don't know if he's pink or not, but who knows why it's happening? It, but it just continues to happen, and it's just you know, it's a fact. It, it doesn't even surprise me that it's happened at this point to see some of his other classes that he's had. Even last year's class was supposed to be good. It didn't work out as well, but it's going to continue, and, and I really don't know why. Yeah, and uh, you know, Calipari he brings in seemingly since he moved to Kentucky, and even when he was at Memphis, he was bringing in some of the best recruiting classes in the country. You mentioned Derrick Rose and and guys like that, and he elevated Memphis to a point where now Memphis is a top ten recruiting uh, uh, power at the moment. So it's it's very interesting. Obviously, the guy's not afraid to uh, let's let's call it like it is, cut some corners in the recruiting game. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of coaches that aren't afraid to cut corners that still don't recruit at the level of a John Calipari. And I think it's the culture he's instilled there at Kentucky where it's almost a, an, you know, an NBA prep team where you bring in all these guys and all of them have the same ambition, and it's to go to the NBA. And, you know, I remember I was watching an interview with Calipari, and he basically doesn't sell the, the prospects on winning basketball games. He sells them on making the millions of dollars. And, you know, you can say whether that's right or wrong or whatever, but you know, this is the way he's selling it. As it, it's, he's selling it as a job training. He's not selling it as the college experience. It's it's the total opposite of the way you know Bo Ryan sells Wisconsin or or, or something like that. And it definitely appeals to kids. And you know, he was saying, "Would I love to win the national championship?" But none of our kids go to the NBA. He's like, "Yeah, I feel good for our team." But I wouldn't feel good that I didn't put anybody in the NBA that year. So it's just a mentality, and right now kids are jumping on board to to try to get a part of this. It's very 
very interesting. And, you know, obviously they didn't make the tournament this year, so it looked like maybe he hasn't gotten things quite so figured out in this one-and-done era. But it may actually lead to him keeping, <laughs> uh, like you mentioned, Willie Cauley-Stein, a big seven-foot center who can really help them, even though they're going to lose Poitras and Noel probably. You know, you're going to supplement it with these six guys, plus a Derek Willis who's going to add great depth. I mean, Kentucky, for a team that didn't even make the tournament, they're going to probably debut in the top five, if not as the number one team in the country. It's going to be very, very bizarre to see. And would either of you guys be surprised if Kentucky won it all next year? No. I think it's a little early to say that they're going to win it all. So at this point, I'd be a little surprised, but just five freshmen coming in and taking over like that. But you never know. Yeah, it's like like we mentioned, they've got a pretty good mix. They've got a couple forwards, a big center coming in. They've got the two twins from Texas that that are kind of versatile players that obviously, you know, they're twins. They they pretty much have ESP. They can uh, communicate with each other pretty well. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what Kentucky does next year. But as we mentioned this year, it's all about Louisville and Michigan. They will go at it tomorrow in the national championship game. Uh, I've got your picks officially. You guys both have the Wolverines. I'm taking Louisville, and even though I really want to pick Michigan, but I I can't go against my pick. Anyways, that's all we've got for you on this edition of Taking You to School, the only college basketball show on the RF Sports Radio Network. For Kels Dayton and Jeremy Conlon, I'm Joe Perello of SweetSports.com. Thank you for joining us, and enjoy the national championship game, everyone. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.